We live in a modern, hyper-connected world where everything is becoming smart and connected. Curious about what lies ahead and how this will impact your daily life? I'm Brett Jordan, and this is Smarter Everything, a podcast on the future of connectivity, powered by Afero. It seems like everywhere we look these days, people are talking about AI or artificial intelligence and expressing their fears, their concerns, and their overall excitement for what this could mean. To be clear, though, AI and ML or machine learning, these are not new concepts, and some companies have been using them for years, if not decades, long before they were cool and all over the news. But most of these companies were using highly specialized and trained models around key applications and solutions. It seems like overnight this field of AI has gone from a specialized research project and system for dedicated tools to a general purpose AI system that can do generative work and provide fascinating interactions, even if the responses given are inaccurate or seemingly completely made up often called a hallucination. In today's episode of Smarter Everything, I will be talking with Dr. Sarab Shintra, a researcher in advanced AI solutions that has worked at both Symantec and Splunk. We will be talking about the recent release of OpenAI's ChatGPT, what it is, how it works, and how it could impact our daily lives. We will also talk about some of the various concepts around AI systems, like what is generative AI? What is a data black hole? How are these systems trained? And what is an AI hallucination? Here is my conversation with Sarab. Sarab, it's really great to see you again. It's been a while since we've worked on some fun projects together. What have you been doing recently? Nice to see you again, Brad. I remember we had a good trip in Prague a couple of years ago. I was a semantic for a little bit. Then I was a Splunk for last about a year and a half. And in the process, I've been thinking a lot about AI coming up into enterprise environment and what kind of security issues that's going to cause. And I think a lot of that thing has actually changed now with these large language models and chat GPD and everything else that's coming on the scene. So I'm thinking deeply about what kind of security and privacy and ethics related issues these things are going to cause and want to dedicate my time to that. Maybe today we can talk a little bit about that and kind of get some of your insights there. Yeah, sounds good. So before we get started, do you want to introduce yourself and give a little bit of your background? Yeah, sounds good. And thanks for that. So my name is Saurav Shintre, and I was until recently a principal machine learning threat scientist at Splunk. And before that, at Semantic, we were together. So I was a researcher at the Semantic Research Labs. And my research interests lie in the domain of machine learning and security, so we started looking into these interesting attacks that were coming up in machine learning, where you can take like a computer vision network, let's say, which is designed to detect a cat versus a dog. And then there was this new problem that came up with these models that you can take a picture of a cat, just strategically change a couple of pixels so that it still looks like a cat to a human being. But to the model, it starts to look like a dog or the model starts to say that this is a dog. And of course, you can see where this goes, right? If you have a self-driving car that uses computer vision and someone can adversarially change a couple of pixels or something like that for a stop sign and make it look to the car like a 60 miles per hour sign, then you're going to have like real concerns. 
So we started working into this space when I was at Symantec. And that sort of has been my introduction and also like the beginning to this field of AI security. Before that, I did my PhD from Carnegie Mellon, also in security. And I speak on issues regarding machine learning, security, deep fakes and stuff in public places as well. So like places like CNBC, Washington Post. I'm also a program committee member for RSA conference for the track of AI and ML. That's fantastic. Yeah, Carnegie Mellon is an amazing school. It's clear that you've contributed a lot to this space. I know the work that you did at Symantec you know, was really fun. And Symantec has used a lot of AI and ML systems for a long time, long before it became interesting and cool. And uh, some of the research that you were doing there in SRL was really impressive. You know, there's been a lot of work and a lot of media attention, especially around the various things that OpenAI has done with ChatGPT recently. So before we get into that, can you explain what is generative AI and how is ChatGPT, OpenAI stuff, how is that different from earlier ML approaches and models and stuff like that that's been done? The generative part is essentially a different type of use case for ML, right? So you can use ML for classification. So that could be like, I want to look at some data and I want to say what is good or what is bad, what is malware, what is goodware, what is a cat, what is dog. So that's sort of the typical use case that we associate machine learning and AI with, which is of classification. The second use case, which is what these models really do, is the generation part. So the question is that if I feed to the model a lot of pictures of a cat, can then it create new pictures of cats that didn't exist before? So you're not basically trying to classify between two things. You're trying to say, hey, I'm going to give you so much data, and I want you to understand what a cat means so that I can basically tell you to come up with a new picture of a cat, the one that you haven't seen in the training data, and you can generate one. So it has some interesting use cases. So for example, one use case is that you can understand styles, right? So I have a picture of Van Gogh. And now I want the same picture, but I don't like it in the style that Van Gogh did. And I want it to look like how Monet would make it. So I would give to these models a lot of pictures of Van Gogh and Monet and would ask it to, hey, take Starry Night from Van Gogh and kind of draw it like had Monet drawn it, right? It doesn't make sense because art is kind of very personal. But what the model ends up doing is that it tries to understand the style of Van Gogh and the style of Monet. And then it also has the capability of converting data that has seen from one part of style to another style. I can make it say things like how Shakespeare in English would say. So that's what the generative part is. The part that is interesting with GPT, which is different, as you mentioned, with previous AI models, is that these models essentially are what we call pre-tamed. So that's the P in the GPT. So what that means is that these models are not really trained for any specific task. They've been given a lot of information pretty much all the data that you can find allegedly on the internet, so you have your Wikipedia articles, your Reddit threads, and all that information. And it has just been trained on all of that intelligence without having a specific use case in mind. So these models, in some sense, have a general intelligence. And then you can take these models and you can fine-tune them with much smaller samples of the actual tasks that you want them to do. And then they are actually able to learn it quickly because they have some kind of general intelligence built into them. So it's different in the sense that we are not really building models that are specific for a task. So not saying that, hey, these are pictures of cats versus dog. We're just trying to give it a bunch of data and automatically understand what a cat is, what a dog is, what a cloud is, and so on. 
So that's sort of what you might call almost like a foundational model. So it has a general understanding of the world that it lives in. The traditional ML or machine language approaches, you know, as you said, we're about classifiers and doing that and this generative stuff. So how do these new systems create responses and the information goes in and it kind of seems like it's going into like almost like a black hole. Can you explain like how these systems are trained? I think a simpler way of understanding these complicated language systems is to start with something simpler. There was something called Word2Vec, which came out a few years back. And essentially it was like a unsupervised system. So you're not labeling anything as X or Y. You're just dumping a bunch of data to these systems. And what the systems basically did was that based on the data given to them, they understood relationships between the words, right? So for example, the model will understand that sort of the gendered words, for example, him versus her, male versus female, and all these kinds of relationships will start to become natural for the model based on the data that it's seeing. That's how these models work, that you dump in a bunch of data, which is all unstructured, and then you help these models understand relationships between words which also allows them to see that if I give you a sentence which is half complete, based on the sentence that has been inputted, the model knows what is the likeliest word to come after. And that's how they start completing these sentences. Systems like word to work in the past were restricted to shorter sentences or even words. The main breakthrough in some sense with these transformer systems is that they can actually generate very long sentences which actually have semantic meaning. And that's how I think the chat GPT stuff is working then, correct? Yeah. So chat GPT also has some other interesting breakthroughs that they went to. One of them is reinforcement learning through human feedback. So chat GPT is more of an interactive system, right? So it's almost like answering questions based on what you are typing it into. A generative system, what it would do is that you would just give it an input saying, write me a resignation letter in the language of Shakespeare, and the system will just start typing it out. What ChatGPT, I think, also does on top is that it can have hold conversations. And the reason why it can do that is basically through this approach of reinforcement learning through human feedback, where these generations that happen also go through human experts, especially on matters of language. And then they give a feedback to ChatGPT based on whether the result was good or bad. And then ChatGPT also trains itself on sort of trying to come up with the best answer in the future that would satisfy these experts. So that's really cool. So they're creating responses based upon the data that they were trained on. So can these responses be trusted? How accurate are these and how correct are the responses? Mostly they are correct because, again, they have gone through a lot of data. So they have a really good understanding of associations with words. The second thing, the transformer architecture allows them to hold longer sentences that also have meaning. But you're right that these models at the end of the day are outputting the next token, as they call it, or you can think of it as the next word based on what they have outputted or what they have been asked in the past. And these relationships are essentially probabilistic. So there are cases when the model outputs something in response to a question that either is not relevant or worse case is output something that doesn't exist. So you can ask it like, who is Brett Jordan and what has he done for security? And it might give you a list of your accomplishments in the field of security, like you work here, you worked there. But just because of the relationships between these words are probabilistic and not hard-coded, it might output that Brett Jordan worked for a company that you actually never really worked for. So in that sense, it's kind of hard to always trust the output of these models. And these are what are called hallucinations. Yeah, I've heard about that before and the hallucinations of ChatGPT and whatever. So that makes it really clear. They can be trusted for the most part, but can they be poisoned? 
They can be poisoned. Of course, ChatGPT comes with its own rules and some set of filters and all that kind of stuff so that you don't output bad language or thoughts that are politically incorrect or abusive. So there are these filters that the model has been sort of built on top of it so that it doesn't output things like that. But at the end of the day, you can output things in the natural language in so many ways that there are ways to bypass these filters and allow ChatGPT to answer things that it's not supposed to. Could I ask it a series of questions and try to feed it responses and have it learn from my responses? And so I could potentially hack people's brains by poisoning the data and then ultimately getting ChatGPT to give incorrect answers? Not exactly, because when you use ChatGPT now, the interactions that you have with it are restricted to a session. So that data is not immediately taken back to GPT to train it. Ah, okay. So it stays within the session, and once the session is over, the data is forgotten. But basically, you can, in theory, put things on the internet in a long con that you basically just start poisoning Wikipedia articles over a period of time undetectably. And then when the next iteration of GPT is trained or when the next iteration of BAR or PAM or BIRD is trained, then that has the misinformation put in place. So ChatGPT is going to produce content. Is it possible that future versions could be trained on content that it had previously generated? And is this a potential for a positive cycle or a downward cycle? If we have a situation where Wikipedia now starts using GPT, or Reddit responses start to be generated from GPT, there is a possibility that most of the content that is found on the internet in the future is actually generative content and not content that was created by humans. And there is a possibility in machine learning where if you train more future iterations of the model based on the output of the previous iterations, the quality can degrade. And in that situation, what's going to happen is that human-created data is actually going to be really valuable because that's what would differentiate between a well-performing model or a poorly performing model. And that's why I think in some sense, you can say that in the world of these foundational models, you don't have IP as such, at least not intelligent IP. What you have, your main differentiator in some sense is the data that you hold, especially data that is created by human beings. One more thing we wanted to talk about, which you touched upon briefly, was how these models kind of act like black holes of information, right? And that causes a lot of issues, especially when we think on these aspects from an angle of security. So just like a physical black hole, these models essentially become like really condensed form of data, right? So all the data that has been found on the internet, Wikipedia articles, Reddit, whatever it is, it's now represented in some shape or form in the parameters of this model. So it's a significant compression on all the textual data into these parameters. Much like a black hole, if an information goes into these model and becomes part of these training parameters, it exists there forever and becomes nearly impossible to take it out and have the model forget what you said to it without having to do substantial retraining or maybe even potentially deleting the model. At least we don't know a good way or efficient way as of now. And the third thing is that just like how inside a black hole, we can't really see what's going on. It also happens with these models that we don't fully understand how they come up with these logical sentences and what kind of probabilistic relationships they have there. And that's why our ability to actually go into these systems and find out when something goes wrong is quite limited and requires new tooling, which we currently don't have in our world. So it's trained on the data that's readily available, but a lot of more accurate data today is behind a paywall. So does that mean it only has access to the things that are readily available or free, which sometimes aren't necessarily the most correct data? Is that correct? Absolutely. I think ChatGPT currently has public data 
up until 2021, if I'm not mistaken. So you can't really go to ChatGPT and say, tell me what is the weather in Mountain View today, because it won't have that information. Okay. But what can potentially happen is, and this is where sort of the connected world also comes in, is that in the future, ChatGPT has API connections to a weather service. So when you ask that question, it actually doesn't pull it out from its own information, but it basically understands what the question is, knows where to direct it, asks the right service and gets back fresh data for you. And in the process, if it's behind paywall, maybe there is some way that it asks you for a payment. Oh, that would be cool. I was helping one of my children with some math homework, and I understand math really well. I've taken a lot of math in college, but the question was kind of weird. And so we would use ChatGPT to ask the question, and it gave a completely wrong answer. And I was like, well, that's like wrong. And it's interesting having a discussion with your kids, and like, but it came from the internet. It came from ChatGPT, and it's probably right. And I'm like, actually, no. And so I went through and I did the problem by hand. And then showed the comparison with ChatGPT. You know, my version was right and was correct according to the back of the book. But then I showed them why the one in ChatGPT was wrong. And so then we went and did some actual internet searches. And we found that the response from ChatGPT was out there on a lot of websites and a lot of people's responses. But there was always comments that, oh, this is wrong. A lot of it deals with order of operations and things like that. It was just really interesting that, you know, it had been trained on something that was wrong and therefore started just saying that it was correct. Yeah. And I think this is sort of a problem that will happen. As I mentioned that the second part of ChatGPT's training is this reinforcement learning through human feedback. So you have some experts who are coming in and saying that the responses being generated from ChatGPT are good or bad, and then sort of retraining the model. But it depends on who is the expert for what, right? So if you're looking at language, sure, some person can easily tell whether this makes sense or doesn't make sense. You know, capital of the United States is Washington, D.C., it's easier to identify. But when you ask it a complicated math question, then depending on who the expert is, they may say that, yeah, this looks right, or they may say it looks wrong. So when you are looking for using these kinds of tools for like specialized things, like solving math problems or like asking it to do like, is this an attack, for example, that I'm seeing in my environment, then you better make sure that the models have been trained or fine-tuned at least to represent the learning of experts in that particular field and not just general experts in the matter of language. Yeah, that's something definitely that we need to think about as a society as these roll out, this defendability of the response and how you talk about it being a black hole and how we don't currently know what's going on inside. Like Those are some things to work through. What are your thoughts on like these responses that it could be patented information or copyrighted or stuff like that? This brings a larger issue around ethics of training and data collection and all that kind of stuff. You're absolutely right. There's a worry about ChatGPT outputting a response that is copyrighted. There is another issue of it basically saying things which are wrong or malicious. So there was recently a case where somebody was trying to use some suggestions on libraries to be used from ChatGPT or one of these systems. And I don't know how the system was gained, but was outputting libraries which were known to be malicious. But when it comes to copyright issues, it's an issue of ethic as much as it is of technology. So different countries will have different take on it. I recently read somewhere that Japan is saying that learning cannot protect you from copyright protection. So if you have data that's copyrighted, that's okay. But if somebody just wants to learn on it, you're not really protected by copyright laws. So there are nuances to that judgment for sure, but I think a lot of these discussions is going to show up in sort of the legal corridors. And I think we are not yet prepared for like having all the nuances of this discussion happen. When we've talked in the past, you've mentioned 
that these LLMs, these large language models, they have a, what you called a temperature value. And it was to determine how much randomness you wanted in your response. Like, what does this mean? So basically, as I said earlier, that the way these models are thinking is that based on the sentence or series of tokens, as they call it, that I've seen in the past, what is the most likely output? So they don't just have the next word for you. They have a series of next words from which they could pick, each with its own probabilistic value or likelihood value. So the temperature value is what sets how the next word is going to be selected from this probability distribution. When you want a deterministic response, you set the temperature to zero, which means that I don't want any randomness according to the model. Give me the most likely word every single time. But when you want to use it for something creative, right? So let's say if you're writing a bunch of like resumes for different companies, you don't want each resume to be exactly the same word to word. You want in some cases to use one word, in some cases another word. So in that case, you can set the temperature to be a little bit higher. So it can go as much as one. And then basically what you're saying is that don't just give me the most likely word, but from this distribution of top 10, let's say, pick something randomly as well. So every single time the output is a little bit different. So if you want to do something creative, then you want to set this temperature to be a little bit higher because you want some randomness, some creativity, so to speak. Oh, that's really cool. That makes a lot more sense now. You were mentioning a little bit about this learning and the Japanese laws and pieces. Like, Where does generative AI and chat GPT fit in the education? Do you have any thoughts or opinions there? I think there's definitely a worry that students will start using ChatGPT to write their essays and all of those kinds of things. There's also a concern of even more serious professions like lawyers will start using ChatGPT for writing their description of a lawsuit and stuff like that. I think the student case is a little bit more interesting and something that we all have to think as a society that why do we teach our kids and judge them or test them on the basis of things that can now very easily be done. It happened to me, but I'm sure it also happened to you when you were growing up that we had a lot of our time spent on like writing and how beautiful your calligraphy was and you would be judged upon that, right? And now we all use keyboards. So I don't know if kids today are being judged on how well they can actually write their calligraphy. So I think there is a lot of questions that are going to come up, like why are we testing our kids in some sense on these kinds of tasks that can now easily be automated. But the other point is that, as you mentioned, that you still want kids to have some kind of reasoning skills being developed because chat GPT's responses are not always going to be accurate, right? So you do want them to learn math, logic, and all those kinds of things. So maybe it changes the structure of how we end up testing kids or students in exam. Like, for example, I think just today there is a new version of GPT-4, which was trained to crack like MIT's coursework exams. And I think it got 100% on it. Wow. It doesn't mean that, oh my God, this system is so smart. It's not as smart as MIT students. It's just that when it comes to testing those students, we're probably doing it in a way that maybe we need to rethink. In the case of like using these kinds of models, generative models for like lawsuits and stuff, I think there have been cases where there's an explicit ban on this being used in writing case law descriptions. In academia, there's a problem like we used to spend so much time writing our own papers and had to be very careful about the words and stuff. Now you can just ask ChatGPT to write an introduction, but then does it count as a co-author or does it count as like as an editor? So there are a lot of interesting issues here that I'm sure that we have not fully thought about, but you know, I'm generally an optimist when it comes to technology. We'll figure this out. We've done this in the past. I've obviously done a lot of editorial work and a lot of really long specification documents and stuff like that. And one thing you know that I think could be useful is it's often easier to 
edit a document, what we call red on black versus black on white. Black on white is the initial writing of the content. And it seems like if you could have an AI system that you could talk to and tell it all of your thoughts for your introduction and what you're thinking about, and then have it write that out for you, and then you could go back in and edit it and tweak it and change it, kind of like a voice-to-text system, but it is a little bit smarter. And so it could combine your various thoughts and put things together. And another thing that I think is important for society to understand is I remember back when calculators weren't allowed in the classroom. Now, my children go take the AP physics and AP math exams, and they're allowed to bring a calculator, and they're allowed to bring a graphing calculator. And so I think there is this natural evolution, but like what you've talked about, I think is really important. I mean, obviously you're an expert in this space. You have years and years of experience in dealing with this. So your insight is so valuable. As society, we just need to understand that not all the data is going to be right. You need to learn the logic and the skills to learn how to ask it the right questions and then to validate whether or not they're going to be right or test it and do things like that. So yeah, memorizing things is just no longer going to be an important skill in the future. That's my guess. I send my kids to a school that teaches classical education. And so they memorize poetry and they memorize things like this. And I think that's a good skill to learn how to do that sort of thing. But I think you're right that memorizing facts and stuff like that is maybe not quite as important. The more you use them, the more you're going to get to know them. And I remember back when I was in my fifth year of math at the university, having a discussion with the professor about whether or not you actually needed to memorize the formulas and all of the ways of doing things. Because chance Chances are at work, you're going to just have them printed out and posted on your wall, or you're going to have a book of integration tables that you're going to occasionally reference when you're like, I can't quite remember which way this was, or you're just going to write some code that will just do it for you. So definitely something I think is going to be interesting for society to try to figure out. One thing I do want to mention is that at this point in time, these systems are essentially at a level of a co-pilot. They have not yet reached the point where they can take the wheels themselves. You always have to keep your hands on the wheel. Because as we mentioned, because of different issues, hallucinations, including one of them, the output is not something that's perfect. And you do need to, as you said, like red on black, you need to edit those things. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of Smarter Everything. We really love feedback. So please consider taking a moment to send us a comment or a rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you have time and you like this episode, please consider subscribing. We'll see you next time for Smarter Everything.